0: So, uh, yeah, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Um, You are an interpreter, but not only an interpreter, but also a a translator, an author, a speaker. And uh, I think we'll cover a few of those uh, things during this conversation. Uh, Maybe tell us a bit about yourself and where you're from. So you're from Brazil initially.
1: Well, Yes. Well, first off, thank you very much, uh, Alex, for having me. It's a pleasure to finally get to see you.
0: Pleasure's all mine.
1: We've met over Skype, uh, not Skype, but Twitter and yes. and uh, LinkedIn and stuff. but mm-hmm. it's the first time we get to talk to one another. so it's a pleasure to be here.
2: Yeah.
1: Yes, indeed I am Brazilian originally and I spent most of my life in Brazil. It was very recent um, only recently that I moved to the US back in 2007. And stay there for about three years and then on to Europe where I find myself now in Geneva
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, You grew up in uh, Belo Horizonte, is that right?
1: That's where I was born. Yeah, I actually grew up in Brasilia the capital of Brazil I moved from Belo Horizonte to Brasilia at the age of five or six more or less and I never left until I was In my middle 40s Mm. And I relocated to the US
0: Yeah and you didn't study interpreting. I think you sort of stumbled in the, into the profession or fell into to, into the profession, as you as you put it. Um, can you tell us a bit uh, about maybe? What what your uh, approach was to your professional life first? So you probably didn't want to become an interpreter straight away because maybe that you would have done that. But um, I think you worked at the Brazilian Parliament for a while, and that was where your first interpreting assignment was. But but how did that come about? Did, was that just an internship, or was that your first job? Uh, maybe tell us a bit about that.
1: Sure. Actually, my background, my my first background is that of a physical educator. So that's what I went to school for. Uh, well, as far as my BA is concerned, so I went to to the University of Brasilia for that. Graduated and it was in the business of teaching people how to swim and and run and running marathons myself and doing all sorts of of endurance sports. Mm-hmm. And then at a at a point, it was very hard to to sustain myself with that with that line of business. And the opportunity came about for me to take a contest, a public contest, to come work for. The Brazilian Parliament, which is a dream job in Brazil, everybody yeah. pretty much uh, wants to land that job. I got approved, I, I passed the the test, and I started working as a clerk, uh, you know, in, a, in an obscure department, not doing anything fun.
0: So it had nothing and, to do with sports or anything,
1: and or interpretation or translation, yeah. for that matter. And then one day, um, they realized that there was a guest coming, and you know, typical bureaucracy behavior in brazil they didn't realize until very late in the game that they that they didn't have anybody to to play the role of interpreter yeah. and because i happened to have had a conversation with a colleague from that department a couple of days before where he was asking me about languages and stuff and i happened to speak english he called me in despair and said listen we have this guy arriving and so on can you can you he be here this afternoon and so i said well i've never done this i mean it's Fine, I can I could help if it were someone you know, someone I don't know not as high up. Yeah. Because it turned out to that the guest that was coming was Prince Philip. Yeah. <laughs> from England. And but again I had no choice and they went to see my boss and before I knew I was sitting in that uncomfortable chair between the the speaker of the house then and Prince Philip. Yeah. So that was my very first gig as a, as an interpreter. Before that, I had taken a leave of absence from the parliament and gone to Germany for a master's degree in my biomechanics, whatever that is, having to do with physical education, again, in fitness and sports. And upon returning from Germany, where I stayed...
0: Where in Germany exactly were you? Konstanz. Konstanz, so more or less in the south of Germany. Exactly.
1: So I stayed there for about six months. The course got postponed. I had to come back because I had a scholarship, and they were calling me back.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And in that process, I got to I got in touch with a book on triathlon, the sport,
2: mm-hmm.
1: in English, and I was very, very enthusiastic about the sport, which was just being born. And I took it upon myself to translate the book. And I went around talking to a, a few publishers. No one was interested. Eventually, I. I landed a, a deal with the University of Brasilia Press.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Again, a very convoluted story because I happened to be teaching uh, swimming, mm-hmm. uh, swimming classes, to one particular person who was the chef de cabinet to the president of the university. And I complained that nobody listens to me. I mean, the university only wants to to publish you know, mythology and so on.
2: Yeah,
1: they said, "Well, write a letter. Also, I'll take it to the president. Let's see what is this. Mm -hmm. The following day, he had a a letter back saying that, yeah, fine, I find your project exciting, go see this person, and it all happened. So that's how I got into translation. I had never translated anything before. All I had was just the knowledge of languages. Translated that book, and I immensely enjoyed it. And as a result, when they called me, as terrified as I was to be there playing the role of interpreter, I was also very excited to be at least trying out and testing something new, having to do with uh, yeah. translation,
2: yeah.
1: that is interpretation. So that's how it all started. The following week, they called me again because an ambassador was coming, and so on. I liked it very much. There was a lot of adrenaline going. I didn't oh, know yeah. it, what I was doing, oh. but I, I enjoyed the adrenaline uh, uh, rush. Yeah. So and then uh, later it became a. A full-time occupation I left my job at the Parliament mm-hmm. and set up a translation agency which I ran for about 17 years in Brazil
0: and how did you know English did you teach it yourself because I think I read somewhere that you read uh, 1984 with a dictionary <laughs> but I exactly you yes. knew at least yeah. some English at that point I think
1: yeah, yeah. language uh, was a, was an interesting journey my father was an English teacher but a very limited one in elementary school level Hmm. teacher
0: did he teach english
1: no that's that's the point he never taught us english okay but what he did was he provided a lot of incentive and because i wanted to grow in my father's image i was very interested in learning and showing him that i could do it as well and so on and so forth Hmm. so i would take any opportunity to to try and speak english and you know back in the age We didn't have the internet, we didn't have anything, computers were not around. Hmm. Uh, The first uh, VCR that came about was many years later. And so we had no access to films or or anything. All we had to make do was some cartoons that we got from one particular bookstore at the airport. (laughs) So I would go and and buy a couple of cartoons and so on. And I had the impression, because I could get a a gist of the stories that I could speak English. Mm -hmm. But in fact, I only had the rudiments of the language.
2: Yeah.
1: But my father all along was pointing me pointing me in the right directions and so on. He gave me a lot of incentive, but I pretty much uh, learned, you know, it was a patchwork. I went here, I took a course there and so on. Mm. I have to give credit to a, a very close friend of mine, a colleague who also went to school with me for, know, she taught at, a, at a, an English school in Brazil and she had a scholarship that she could give to anyone mm-hmm. she gave it to me because her husband didn't want to go through the trouble of, of learning english at school yeah so i went most of my you know schooling was done at, at that course but at a point i just got fed up and i mm-hmm. and, but so and that's when i decided to to read the book i said well let me let me take it in a different direction. Yeah. I got the book 1984 by George Orwell because I had read it in Portuguese a month or so yeah. before that. So I knew the story. It was fresh in my mind. I said, well, fine. I know enough of the plot to not to get lost. Yeah. So if any vocabulary is missing and so on, I can still get a feeling of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And it was a very interesting experience because I I remember vividly opening the first book. It was a pocket book. hmm you know, the small format. I opened the very first page, and it was not not even a full page. It's like you know, those opening chapter pages, which is like three quarters of a page, and that's yeah. it. I remember looking up at least thirty words in the dictionary just for those two paragraphs. Yeah, and I said, "Well, this is not going to work." But I I really plowed through, and I was it, frankly, I was reading the dictionary and looking up things in the book. Yeah. Pretty much it was the other way around, yeah. so, but by the end of that book i my knowledge had increased to tenfold mm. and then from there it was it was just a, a matter of, of keeping at it and and it worked
0: well, i think we've we 've all been there I, I still remember being in French class in school, and sometimes when we had to write a test or something or write a text down. And we were allowed to use uh, a monolingual dictionary, so French only. But we we found it completely useless because uh, the explanations usually. Then you would have to look up a word from the explanation to understand the explanation for the first word. So it's very very tiring. But uh, it's it's great that you kept at it. Yes, I did as well. Yeah,
1: that's what I did as well. And, and very often, you know, the the explanation of one word would take me to another four mm. just to understand the first uh, description. So in that, what really enlarged my my vocabulary, I guess. Yeah. But and then I continued to just take every opportunity to practice and so on. But the first time I left Brazil and and I had any exposure, international exposure, uh, was in 1988 when I went to Germany. So I was already twenty five or six years old back then. Hmm. So,
0: so that was just just one year before the wall came down. Was did did you feel there was anything in the air, or was that was that never a a topic or something that you experienced, uh, like any any political change that was somehow in the air.
1: No, that's funny. It's funny that you ask because I was in Germany the very day it happened, mm-hmm. not in Berlin but in Frankfurt. Because a couple of years down the road, when I came, I had just come back from from uh, Germany. I resumed my job at the parliament. I was really really bored. Mm-hmm. I didn't enjoy what I was doing, and I started looking for side occupations, if you will. Mm -hmm. and a a friend of mine told me that Lufthansa was looking for help and I decided to give him a call one day and just to make a long story short, they put me through the the bus, we had a short conversation in in German, he wanted to test my German Mm -hmm. and later it turned into English, he was really impressed that I could also speak English And we set up an interview for the next day. And a couple of weeks later, I was already in Germany taking the first course for employees. And that was the the start of a very interesting two years of Lufthansa. Hmm. So in one of those uh, opportunities where I had to go to Germany for a test, the very day I arrived, hit by the news that the, the wall had fallen. Hmm. At that point, it was already too late to try and get to Berlin because so the roads were, were impossible. Yeah, but, uh, but anyhow, it was a good feeling to have been there. Yeah, very interesting.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you told us you then ran this translation agency for quite a while, but, but at some point you took the decision or somehow realized that you, you wanted to have proper training because you, you didn't train to be an interpreter or, or train to be um, a translator. And uh, that took you to Monterey, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Exactly, yeah. The issue at that point was that I was not just running a, a successful business in translation and I was you know, the, the main practitioner of that business myself as an interpreter and a translator, and I had written a book as well. I had just published a book on interpreting, which stands still as the only book in Portuguese. As an authority in the field, I had set up also a training school for interpreters, and it was very successful. Again, a very interesting concept of fast training that yielded wonderful results, and I started to feel funny for not having the right credentials again who who was I I was just a a fitness instructor if you will with Mm -hmm. a university degree but nothing to do with interpreting. so at that point I decided to put my career on hold and went on the market looking for the right uh, degree I went to Monterey once just to for a visit to test and I checked a couple of other schools out in Brazil there was nothing that would really interest me because they are not where really you cut one person out and with that I couldn't graduate with only in only one year and that played well with my professional life and again the plan was to go there get the degree and get back in Brazil and continue to do what I was doing hmm. but then uh, that degree opened so many doors and it changed the game completely
0: yeah because I think I I read that you then um, uh, I I don't know if the, if that's standard practice at the final exams in Monterey that they have people from outside sitting in um, listening to the candidates and then giving recommendations which I think in your case was exactly what happened there was somebody from the from the State Department I think and uh, they invited you to the test
1: yeah it, it is standard practice that you you perform in front of your professors, your your faculty, but also uh, invited guests from the European Union, the State Department, the Government of Canada, mm-hmm. and the UN. And at the end of one of my performances, it was actually a consecutive performance, uh, the lady who was then the Chief interpreter of uh, State Department, Patsy Ariza, asked uh, to see me. We had a chat and she said, I want you to go to Washington and, and test. I know you've been through a rigorous program, you've just been tested here, but we, we have this policy that everyone needs to be tested. It's by invitation only. So she told me to call someone, I did, and I guess one or two weeks later I tested with the state. I passed the test. And a month after that I started getting invitations to go work in Washington, so I decided to relocate there. And then it was it, it proved to, to be the right decision because I started working for state department for all the big summits and and smaller events but also very very often for the oas organization of american states mm-hmm. and the, the imf was already um quote-unquote client of mine mm-hmm. so i felt really well accepted in, in washington with a lot of room to grow
0: but that was in a, you were a, a freelancer you were not in a staff position no, I was a freelancer. freelancer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and you were based in Washington or uh, still in I was based in Washington. Yeah.
1: Oh, okay. I relocated there.
0: Mm. Yeah. And, and was that how you sort of got into the uh, UN system? Which no, is where I, you stayed, work today, I, I stayed
1: in Washington for about three years.
0: Mm.
1: And I was doing really, really well. But then I started looking into staff positions for more than anything family reasons. I have three kids they were reaching an age where i would have to put them uh, put them through school yeah. yeah and i was you know i wasn't getting any younger i was you know already 45 or six
2: mm.
1: and i said well i would really try to i would really like to try and work for for an international organization for some time and then i didn't, i started applying left and right
2: mm.
1: and one of the organizations uh, for which I applied was the ITU. And it was interesting because I remember one of my references, uh, the chief interpreter of the IMF, Susanna Eri, who was a good friend and still is. When I mentioned to her, by the way, I listed you as my reference for ITU. She said, ITU? Yes. Geneva? Yes. Forget about it. Zero chance. (laughs) She told me, zero chance. I said, why? Why that? Well, for many reasons. I mean, Geneva is, a, is an animal of its own. Mm. There are many colleagues from Geneva who will apply. You don't speak French yet, and I didn't back then. So why would they choose you? Forget about that. And I did. I completely forgot about it. And lo and behold, I was vacationing in Brazil and in August or July. She calls me and she says, well, by the way, you're not going to believe this, but they called me and they were really interested in you. <laughs> they...
0: So they're all they, about the reference, then.
1: Yeah, they, they interviewed her and they interviewed me, and and they gave me basically three weeks to relocate. So it, it happened that way. So
0: yeah. it was uh, fun. And and you're now what they call the the chief um, interpreter. And let's just say so the 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 ITU is the International uh, Telecommunications. What's the U for again, sorry? Union. Union. Yes. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, which is part of the UN system. And uh, maybe for those who don't really know about it, what what do they do? What's what's their mission?
1: ITU is the oldest specialized agency of the United Nations. It uh, goes back to 1865. We just celebrated 150
0: years of existence. Yeah. But it was about post, I think, and, and things like that before, and telegraphs probably
1: it started as Mm. well they they kept the same acronym but it was then the international telegraph union Mm -hmm. following uh, the invention of the of the telegraph and the radio telegraph and and all that Mm. and then uh, when the united nations was uh, created uh, soon after that they became uh, the international telecommunication union and started to you know came under the the wings uh, of the united nations Basically, well, ITU is the specialized agency of the UN for the ICTs, information and communication technologies. So they look into their three bureaus. They look into radio communications, you know, all, all the frequency assignments and, and you know, the things that keep the airplanes flying and making sure they can communicate and all the different services that use the spectrum. You have one sector that looks into developing uh, ICTs in the third world countries. So it's a, a bureau for the development of telecommunications and another one that looks into standards,
2: mm-hmm.
1: making sure that the many different devices that we have get to talk to one another because they operate on the, on the basis of common standards.
2: Yeah.
1: Basically, that's what we do. Mm-hmm. And we, we go into, as of late, into things like uh, cyber crime prevention, online uh, protection of children and things like that. Mm.
0: Sounds like quite an interesting uh, work, then. Um, it is very.
1: It gets very technical. It can get very boring for an interpreter, depending on the on the meeting. Yeah. But it's it's a very important and interesting mandate for an organization. So it's very, and it's also a very tech savvy organization in mm. that. I, like I can hearing.
0: imagine. Yeah. yeah. So how much time do you spend in the booth actually as a chief interpreter? Because I would imagine that you also have to do uh, quite a bit of administrative work.
1: Um zero to zero. tell the truth yeah. yeah since i relocated here i haven't had a chance to interpret say for you know 15 minutes here and there to to cover up for someone That was once in in dubai and it was supposed to be just english french and arabic the minister of costa rica appeared last minute and wanted to to make a speech at that point i i got to interpret and but for the most part i don't get to do any any interpreting And by the way, I was chief interpreter for five years, up until July or so of this year. Mm -hmm. As of January, actually, I was promoted to head of conference management, which sits on top of interpretation. I continue to supervise the service, but I don't have my hands in it anymore Mm -hmm. on an operational level. So it's less legwork now. But I continue to get involved in in the strategic decisions, communications with AIIC and Mm -hmm. and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it is, it is quite interesting. But the, the interesting thing, Alex, maybe it's a question that crosses your mind, I don't know. The interesting thing is that when I came, I was so into interpreting that I felt I wouldn't stand being away from the booth.
0: That's why I'm asking him.
1: Yeah. yeah. But in a matter of months, it was, I mean, everything else I was doing, it was so exciting. Because I was looking into things like remote participation and getting into the technology, getting to, to talk to the interpreters to make sure they are on board and so on. It's a change management process that we got to deal with hmm. quite successfully. So many, many different things. And I realized that I didn't miss it at all. And I don't hmm. still, to this day.
0: I mean, you're still in touch with interpreting to some degree. So it's not like you're doing yeah. something completely different.
1: Yeah. So the bus became a bit small. Yeah, I like the the fact that I that I've been an interpreter for twenty five years, and I've been I've walked in the shoes of my colleagues. Mm. But more than anything, what I like doing now is mentoring the new generation, yeah. writing articles that you know help them understand what the challenges are, help them navigate some of the some of the issues, and teaches uh, them or teach them not the technicalities of the job per se, because there are many other sources for that information. Mm. But more than anything. The right behavior, the right demeanor, which I think is what is really uh, lacking in the profession. And as a chief interpreter, I got to to see that firsthand. Uh, for example, uh, interpreters who are excellent in what they do and who make silly mistakes in how they communicate and how they relate to the, you know the organization, the chief interpreter, the senior management, so they. There are many, many silly things that can be avoided if you take the right perspective. So that's what I, I try to write on. And that's what I try to, to get across to people in whichever way I can.
0: Yeah. Um, and as, as far as I know, ITU is, is quite advanced. And you said it as well and just talked about remote participation. I think ITU is quite at the forefront with this. Um, so do, do you... Do this on a regular basis now that you have remote participation also with um, simultaneous interpretation
1: yes remote participation is now a staple of our meetings and it's a process in which I got involved from the get-go I mean the multilingual aspect of it because we had been doing uh, remote meetings for uh, as far as back as you can look hmm. but in, in introducing the multilingual side of it getting to giving people people the chance to speak in whatever language remotely, not sitting in their home offices in Burkina Faso or Brazil or Cuba, and still be able to speak in Spanish or French or whatever, and be interpreted as if they were sitting in the room, and also be able to follow in whatever language they want from afar. That's that's, uh, unheard of. And we found a way to actually make it work, it was a challenge because the technology was not there initially. It's still not there entirely.
2: Mm.
1: But it's uh, it's evolving fast, and we're making it work because we developed a number of procedures to make sure that the interpreters are protected, that the reputation is not at stake, that we have a plan B in case the connection is lost. So it was a paradigm shift, if you will. It was very hard to sell to the interpreters at first, but what I did was I called them to the table, I uh, involved them by asking them for feedback, and they all felt uh, involved in in part of the process. so this is now flying big time in ITU and we're now exporting it to other to other agencies as well
0: because I could imagine that maybe the the challenges with uh, your interpreters were probably much higher and much tougher than the technical challenges. Um, because you said it, it, it was difficult in the beginning to to sell this and to get the interpreters on board. But somehow you managed, um, and and I think you work mainly or even exclusively with uh, freelance interpreters at ITU. Yes. Yeah. Um, but but they got on board eventually um, because they were. Do you think it was because they were sitting at the table and they they were informed and and involved in the process?
1: That was a, a major issue, but more than anything. I guess what we, what we did was find a way of protecting the reputation of interpreters. Interpreters are only concerned to the extent that they feel that whatever problem happens might revert back as, as a, a negative impression. Yeah. yeah. As far as that work is That's concerned. Right. So let's say you're in the middle of a meeting. The connection is so poor that you can't do anything about it, and you stop interpreting for whatever reason because it's undoable. And then the delegates start, you know, get mad and start yelling at at you and so on. And then that's the nightmare an interpreter feels the most. What we did was create a number of procedures whereby, for example, at the start of every meeting, the very chairman reads a disclaimer from the podium saying that interpreters... uh, The interpreters that we have at this meeting are the best in the industry. They've been trained to deal with very demanding uh, speeches and so on. Mm -hmm. But please understand that whatever is good quality for a delegate sitting on the floor, and enough for for you to get the gist of it and so on, is not uh, proper quality or good enough quality sometimes for an interpreter. If quality deteriorates, the interpreter uh, has every right uh, to stop interpreting, and we have to understand that this is they're doing their best.
2: Yeah.
1: So, And then there's a series of procedures in place. So if anything bad happens, the interpreter, actually the, the uh, chef they keep, the team leader, or the chief interpreter has a say in whether they continue to interpret or not. Also, every call is screened before.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We screen the call to make sure it is doable. The interpreter, the, the team leader, comes and listens to it. If it's deemed uh, undoable for whatever reason, no questions asked, we don't do it. Okay. And everybody understands. So there's enough goodwill involved. So once you settle that, everyone wants to go the extra mile. The interpreter also wants to feel good that that he or she can do it. Mm. So eventually, if the quality is doable, even if video is not there, but if the audio quality is good, then you go a long way. Something interesting we did also was we hired uh, a person who in the past had been a disc jockey, so <laughs> okay. someone who's used to a situation where if the music's not playing right, people will start yelling at them, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> the house comes down. Yeah. So and this guy is very uh, knowledgeable in, in clicking the the audio it signals, the, the the bass line and the you know, the different frequencies and so on. Yeah. And he developed a software where the minute a call comes in and we're screening it, he starts changing the parameters and so on and improving depth, improving this and improving that until we're satisfied. Once we say, this is a go, he saves that as a memory for that particular speaker. So when the person calls again, hmm. those parameters apply immediately.
2: Wow, we also had a box...
1: Very sophisticated, Mm. but very real-time. It's really fast. Mm. We also bought a box that does uh, noise uh, reduction. It's the same box that the BBC uses, for example, when a reporter is out there Mm. with a lot of wind blowing against the microphone and so on. They let the person do whatever he or she has to do. And later, they process the signal. They eliminate any noise that shouldn't be there. It really works. works really good.
0: (laughs) Excellent. And the interpreters are in the meeting room? Is that right? Yes. And sometimes it's just the interpreters and the and the meeting president?
1: No, no, no. no. It's a meeting going on in Geneva attended by hundreds of delegates okay. with the interpreters on site. So it's business as usual for them. Only a few delegates who could not travel to Geneva and who very much want to participate ask to be recognized remotely. So there's a system whereby they can press a button where they are, and the chairman has a monitor that says somebody from, say, Mali wants to take the floor. So they've raised their hand, so mm-hmm. to speak. Yeah. So that person is recognized. And you say, okay, we have a remote participant from Mali, you minister such and such. And you have the floor. So you give the floor to that person. His voice comes through... A, complicated set of gadgets
2: hmm.
1: into the, the conference room. And at that point, it goes to, to the floor signal. So for the interpreters, the audio comes in as if anybody had taken the floor just below them. Hmm. So it all boils down to the audio being of good quality or not. If audio is of good quality, even if you don't have the image, it's like interpreting for a delegate whom you can't see because they are hidden under your booth yeah yeah without a camera or whatever so in my experience, as, as far as the audio is good it's completely doable
0: so you said that you monitor the whole thing from a technical point of view do you also monitor uh, it, whether there's maybe an in- increased level of stress for the interpreters or uh, do you monitor, monitor the quality and have you made any subsequent changes because of things that you may have observed
1: so far we haven't, because the remote participants, whenever they speak, they never go for too long. It's five or three to five or ten minutes max. It's just enough time for them to make a short comment or ask a question and interact for a couple of minutes, you know, to it from, and, and that's it. Sometimes it gets a bit complicated when you have a series of people lined up to speak remotely. But again, if audio is good, it's not even an issue. It's not any any significant major additional burden for, for the interpreter. And so far, we haven't come to, to a point where there is a mention of any you know, additional pay or additional you know, changes in, in working conditions or anything like that. And quality, again, we, we take a reactive uh, position. So... We wait to hear if the delegates are satisfied to any extent. And so far, all we've heard is very, very positive. They're very happy for the inclusion, it means. Mm. The fact that now 10 people from Mali or Burkina Faso or South Africa can participate without paying tickets, coming you know, getting on a plane, coming here, uh, is a major advantage for them. So they're even ready to accommodate some some minor flaws here and there. So mm.
0: Okay, I think what I didn't realize was that it's actually just a few participants calling in um, from from afar. Have you seen any change there? So are there now more people who say, okay, this works, uh, it's fine if I stay at home and don't make the trip and just call in? Have you seen any significant changes there?
1: Not really. What, what we notice is that people who wouldn't otherwise come to Geneva anyway, hmm. you see, the 2nd the, the rank officers and people who would love to participate but never get to because they never travel to Geneva, now they can. Mm. So it increases for the country, it increases the the representation, it increases the, the weight that the country may bring to bear concerning a certain issue on a given day, I don't know. But I haven't really noted any increase in the number of delegates Working remotely in terms of uh, well let me rephrase that I haven't noted an increase in the number of people asking to participate remotely because they don't want to come to Geneva. <laughs> they love to come to Geneva and much of the of uh, many of the decisions and much of the Work is done, as you know, during the coffee breaks, when you
2: you
1: know informally and so on. This, this you can never take away. And some of the meetings, also the conferences that are treaty making conferences and so on, for those we cannot use remote participation because they have to vote. There, there's the whole issue of quorum and how you you look at quorum and so on. So, there are many instances where it's not even possible.
0: So, if you vote, people have to be in the room they
1: have to be
0: present yeah okay so it sounds like the interpreters handled all this quite professionally uh, which which is good to see and i think which is also what you what you hinted to earlier when you said that you're now trying to sort of teach the next generation about how to act professionally um have you seen any development, improvement um, there between the generations of young interpreters that you recruit, for example? Have you seen that they become more professional over time because the training has become more professional, maybe?
1: Well, if anything, what I see is a greater willingness to to take on technology, Mm -hmm. to deal with technology. Some of the interpreters who, who come to work for ITU uh, already at the at a later phase in their career, so they're in their early seventies sometimes, sometimes uh, uh, in their late sixties and so on. So they they've already you know, they're about to retire, if you if you ask me, and they don't want to be bothered about you know a new technology or a tablet or a new computer and so on. It's a hard sell sometimes to these colleagues. But by contrast, the interpreters were just coming uh, fresh out of school. Uh, technology is something they, they were born with. Mm-hmm. We're talking about people in their early 20s. So they they can't remember a time when computers were not around, or when a tablet was not around. Yeah. So I have an intern working with me now, and the other day we were talking about this and that and so on. I said, well, in 1992, she said, oh, gee, I wasn't born. I hadn't been born. <laughs> I nineteen ninety two is just around the corner for me, right? Yeah, yeah. And again, I mean, if you were not around before that, and you only came into this world in nineteen, say nineteen ninety three, a, a computer is an extension of your hands, yeah, so it, it's a lot easier to to sell mm-hmm. right yeah. to these interpreters. Yeah.
0: Um. But but you still you still seem to see a necessity for the the articles that you write, which I very much like. And maybe we can talk about a few of those um, now. Um, where do you think they have to learn the most? I don't know if I'm making myself clear. Um, is is it about professional behavior towards um, the client, so the or, or the uh, employer in this case, or is it teamwork? Um, is there something that sort of stands out as something that uh, where you see a need to for more development?
1: That's uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I write about different things, and I, I, I write on many. I write on many subjects, and whatever the subject, what I feel is that there's a a, a different outlook that is not usually the outlook they come out of school with. So say, for example, you talk about um, silence or trying to work out, with deal with a a speaker who's speaking too fast and getting a lot in that doesn't really add to the substance of what they're saying. For an interpreter who just came out of school, they come with that notion that an interpreter has to get everything in. Yeah. And it's my job to get every word in, and, and I, I'm not in the business of editing anybody else's words and so on and so forth. So what I try to do in whatever I write about is give people a different outlook, teach them how to step back,
2: mm-hmm.
1: to make you know, take a one step backwards, and look at things from a different perspective and, and, and ask, them what if? What if I don't have to get everything in? How does that affect my delivery, my performance? And why don't I look at it uh, from a different angle? So, for example, I wrote an article many, many, a couple of years ago about coping with fear. Everybody thinks that well, fear is, is a given in the profession, I have to, to get through it and, and beyond it by working through it. And it's a very bullheaded approach to it. It's it's a forceful approach, a young approach. Mm. I'll put myself through it. I'm nervous, but I'll try to deny, and eventually I will conquer it. When in fact, when you when you again take a step back, look at it from a different angle, and first accept it as a as a, a natural natural reaction, and then understand that your job is not again to you're not a machine. You're not there to translate and get every piece of of word in.
2: Yeah.
1: You're just there to try and mediate dialogue. And then if you try and make an analogy with what you would do when you're talking to people, friends, or or trying to mediate any conversation offline, anything goes. If you don't understand something, you ask. If uh, you make a mistake, you correct yourself. And you don't get stressed out for that. And it's the same in the booth. And uh, it's not because you're in the booth that, oh, now everybody looks up to you and, and you're supposed to, to get every word in and never make a mistake. So... It's What I try to to do, I'm trying to to encapsulate it in a way that would be concise, but what I try to do is get people to think differently about what they do, about what motivates them, about what they bring to to the table, trying to develop a wiser way of looking at what they do and be more creative in what they do, more relaxed about what they do, Um, relax a bit more and... And what's the word?
0: Well, I think enjoy it more in a way.
1: Enjoy it more, yeah, and and just bring the the whole anxiety about about being perfect and about performing a couple of notches down, and as a result performing better. Right? I'm not advocating that. Well, oh, just just relax and good enough is is good enough. And no, no,
0: yeah, not slacking. Yeah.
1: Not not slacking. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the way not to slack and to excel and to perform better and better, is is rooted in that understanding. That's my, my approach.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned this article, because I, l- I listened to a, a very interesting talk by uh, a NATO staff interpreter, Chris Gishota and he mentioned your article, and his talk was precisely about fear and, and what to do about it, and uh, he, he, he explained that uh, very well, I think, and uh, um, he said that he often interprets for heads of state and government, for ministers, so presumably high-stakes interpreting, which you've done a lot of <laughs> he put yeah. it very nicely i think well those heads of state and government they're just politicians who did well it, you know it doesn't mean that they're superhuman or that they know everything so um i think that also plays to that thing that you said that sometimes it, it makes sense to look at things from a different perspective and not to just freak out because you're sitting in a booth and it's it's a council of ministers or it's a high level uh, meeting and uh, i think once you take that different perspective that makes it I don't know if it makes it easier, but I think it makes it easier to enjoy it and maybe don't don't sweat it too much. Yeah. And I think that can be can be very helpful.
1: Yeah, Chris was very supportive when that uh, article came out, and so was Julia Borger. Mm. Uh We exchanged a few emails on that, and at a point we we were trying to get it to work where I would go and and teach a couple a couple of give a, a seminar or so mm. to the, the wonderful course that they have up in Cambridge. Yeah. And, yeah, but, you know, again, it's it's the whole the, the whole approach of looking at people from a human angle as mm-hmm. opposed to from a, a professional, um, almost uh, mythological level way. You know, they're always, as you said, superhuman, mm-hmm. and you're just the interpreter, right? You're part of the conversation, and you will change the conversation just by being a part of it. Yeah. When you realize that, things tend to fall into place uh, more easily.
0: Absolutely. Um, Maybe to finish things off, another sort of common thread that I see in many of your articles was uh, music. So apparently you seem to to like music a lot, and and I do too. Um, For example, you'd already mentioned the one uh, which is called The Sound of Silence, where you talk about Beethoven and and how he used to... uh, I think note down uh, the pauses in his music specifically in the score so i think that's a very nice inspiration for us as well or the or the other one which is called uh, la vie en rose which is um forgive me if i'm oversimplifying but which is about uh using music or the the impact of music on language learning and and getting deeper into a language and culture which which (laughs) very much resonated with me but do you see a lot of parallels between music and interpreting in terms of performance, or maybe also deliberate practice and uh, yeah, performance and 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 uh, yeah, those things?
1: Yes, it's interesting that you that you point to that. First of all, those were articles that I enjoyed very much writing. Mm-hmm. They were very emotional. They they took me back to some of my fond memories of my childhood. Mm-hmm. My, you know, Mia and, and dad lying on the floor listening to Nat King Cole. It dawned on me all of a sudden that, well, I am I understand what, what they're saying. And then commuting uh, to Geneva and suddenly listening to La Vie en Rose, uh, a tune I'd I listened to many, many times without a clue as to what was being said. And one day, just daydreaming, realized, well, it don't make sense. Yeah. So it is, it is, it's, uh, very revealing, and that's how also uh, language uh, plays when it finally gets to you. right? Mm,
0: yeah.
1: Uh, also the whole the whole thing. That, there's also an article where I talk about um, a saxophone player. Yes. It's called the Compassionate Interpreter, mm-hmm. with whom I had a very interesting conversation because it's it's someone who's been on every jazz festival on the planet. Someone who performs in front of Literally millions of people. He's from uh, Brazil as well. Yeah, yeah. And his family, his his mother, okay. <laughs> my my brother-in-law. Oh, okay. So we had a, a very nice conversation one day because when before he goes on stage, and this is someone who's done this from age six mm. all the way here, and we we are about the same age,
2: mm. in
1: our early fifties, and so he knows everything there is to know, <laughs> and there's not a doubt in his mind about how well he can perform, and he always excels every single time. But before going on stage, he gets really introspective, and he prays, and he meditates, and he gets really serious about it. Mm-hmm. And we had this wonderful uh, wonderful conversation about, why do you do this? I mean, are you still nervous? I said, no, I'm not nervous, not, not in the least. But I understand the responsibility of being on stage,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I try to remind myself as to why it is that I'm doing it, and I continue to do it it gives me strength to continue to do it because I realize that the reason I go on stage every day is to try and change at least one person on the audience. And I found that very beautiful it's because beautiful, it is, um, I remember, he told me, I remember how touched I was when as a kid I went to a concert mm. and I said, I want to be a musician. I want to create that feeling and that experience to other people in the future. So when I go on stage, I put myself in that, in that mood I have that responsibility. But many different people, other people, they play for different reasons. There are people who are angry because they're not recognized or whatever and so on, and it works for them. They go into that corner where they feel, you know, uh, unvalued, where they feel this or that way. It's it's a negative emotion, Mm. but it, it gets the best out of them. So, and I use that uh, that conversation to, again, get people to look into why it is that they do what they do and find a good reason to, to do it. Because at the end of the day, Alex, interpreting is hard work. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of stress. Mm-hmm. It's uh, Many things can go wrong. You'll have bad days occasionally. Eventually, you know, in the course of a long career, you're going to have many bad days. Unless you find an enjoyable way motive or reason behind it, why do it?
2: Hmm.
1: Why would you put yourself through that misery on a constant basis if there's not a a higher motive behind it that gets you to do what you do? So, again, um, trying to get people to realize that, okay, fine, I mean, uh, if at the end of the day I realize that the reason I play is is not uh, very very laudable for whatever reason, but still it gets me to perform well, fine. But ideally we should all be transiting uh, through uh, through compassion right? if we could, to find a, a better reason for, you know, to continue to do what we do. So now, one day, we have to find a, a way of interviewing you. <laughs> we also need to hear from you. And, and I, I listened to the one podcast you had about how you became an interpreter. Mm, yeah. It was very nicely done, it was a, a very interesting uh, piece. But it would be good to also have you on the other side of the country uh, <laughs> answering some of the questions
2: you're asking.